Real Talk listeners, welcome back. Welcome back, Michelle. We are just going through and we are talking about onboarding. And it's interesting because people are going to be like, why are you beating a dead horse with onboarding? But it's interesting because some organizations do this well and some not so much. And I think there needs to be a revamp in your onboarding process if it still looks the same as it did five years ago. I happen to agree with you. You know, sometimes you and I don't agree with each other, but in this particular case, you're spot on. (laughs) Well, I learned so much from you in our last session, Michelle. I just took all of that knowledge in and went and applied it myself. So I have to tell you, before we really jump into this episode, I think usually the end of the year, the first of the year, it's usually Maria when we talk about ourselves. Right now, I'm going to talk about myself because my dog is sitting right here beside me and he's being really good. My dog usually only barks when random people show up and he tries to be really threatening to them. So you wouldn't even know he's here because he's being so well behaved. But seriously, he just keeps poking me with his snout right now, like on my arm. So I know he wants something. I'm going to ignore him though. <laughs> I forgot where we were in this process because he's poking me. <laughs> So we are talking about the seven steps to building a better onboarding process. Oh, yeah. And people might not love to hear some of these steps. Why not? What's the problem? Well, I have my theories and you know, I believe that my theories are usually accurate. So they might not be accurate for your organization, but there are some commonalities in the world. There are always commonalities in the world. And one of those being that onboarding is seen as a checklist of activities that you are required to do by some internal or external deciding party. And as a result of that, you create a checklist of activities. I think one of the things that switches the mindset is for you to actually ask yourself what you're trying to accomplish in this process. And I'm going to give you guys the six C's. And here's reality. If you're not trying to accomplish these six things in your onboarding process, then you need to reconsider your career in human resources because it should be people-focused. And these six things are people-focused. So the first one I want to talk about is culture. You guys know what I mean? What I'm talking about is the culture of your organization. When I say culture, I do not mean the diversity of your organization. I mean your values, your mission, your vision, the way you are expected to treat people within the organization. So culture is the first C. I don't care what order you put them in. It's one of the Cs. Second, (laughs) connection. Connection to their boss, connection to their peers, and connection to others within the organization. Huge one here. In fact, I almost feel like every new person to an organization should be given like a mentor or a buddy, but I also feel like they should be given, let's call them a connector. They should be introduced to a person that knows everybody and makes connections with other people. I remember... The first time I met Diane Scarpa at FedEx, I was like, holy crap, she's the best. Immediately, I understood 
the version of connector and I strived to become that for other people. And it's the ability when you're having a conversation with someone to say, oh my God, you need to meet blah because they can help with blah. That attitude comes natural, but connection is super important. The next thing that I want to talk about is clarification. And this is clarification for all parties. It gives you as the employer, the ability to clarify some expectations, but it also gives the employee the ability to ask for clarification. Which is crucial and important in an entire onboarding process to ask for clarification. Because I think if you just assume you know everything, then that's very interesting. But you also are saying your leader is very perfect at clarifying every step of the process. Yeah, they're really not. So let's be honest, right? The next one is you do have to deal with compliance. So I know I you know, just kind of possibly threw a lot of people under the bus by talking about the checklist. Oh, I've never designed a program based on a checklist. And it is because I worked with someone really smart once who worked in the auditing department of our organization. And I got really frustrated because they would come to the class and they would teach. This is what we do in American school systems. I hope the rest of you don't have the same school system as us in America because it is dumb. But they would teach to pass the test. And I remember pulling this guy aside and I was like, we've got to fix this because I want to teach them why it matters that they sign off the way they sign off. And that way, people aren't looking for shortcuts just to make it happen. They actually understand why it's important. And as a side note, if you can't give me a reason that it's important, then it probably shouldn't be an audit item. If it doesn't have an impact on the customer, the employee, or business effectiveness, who cares how we do it? And so he immediately said yes. And we started to change the way we delivered that instead of teaching them to pass a test, we taught them to do the right things. I really feel like when it comes to compliance in particular, stop thinking about, oh, I don't even care if OSHA cares what I say. Who gives a shit about your OSHA audit? Give a shit about your employees' safety. That OSHA was put in place, and this is, wow, I'm on my soapbox right now. It's the same reason we have diversity reporting, the same reason we have the National Labor Relations. We have those things because companies would not willingly do better for their employees. And so the government or a government body came in to audit things to make sure you were doing what you should be doing for your employee. The reality is OSHA does not care if you teach ladder safety in an e-learning face-to-face in 30 minutes or 45 minutes. They care that you create an environment where employees are safe around ladders. And that's a big difference. So change your mindset on compliance. I know you've got to do it and you might get an audit and you're all freaking out about the audit. But guess what? If your employees don't go around getting hurt, nobody's going to come audit you. 
because you're doing the right things. Okay. We are moving away from college testing and learning how to pass the test versus actually learning the concept. It's crazy. But if you do that, if you make that mind switch, what you can do with your compliance stuff, like you were talking about how you've seen the two hour sexual harassment video every single year, probably for most of your career. Yep. Yep. And then probably at some point assigned it to multiple other people to force them to go through it. And yet the very best harassment course that I've ever been through is where we, Real Talent, work with an organization. We delivered it live because we didn't have a choice based on timing and delivery methods. So while it is not a common method for delivering that training in mass, it was the method that we had available. And while I cannot tell you how much I never want to repeat legal statutes again in my life... (laughs) It was the best class ever because we could actually have conversations on why things mattered. So instead of them reading a slide about how you treat people that are different from you, which is what it would be if it were an e-learning, even if someone had a voiceover, it would be a slide that basically said, you can't do these things to other people. We were able to show the slide of things that you should not do. And we were able to talk about the nuances about how saying things a certain way could be offensive because of this. So we're actually digging into the things that mattered. So think about that as it relates to your compliance. Are you checking a box or are you actually teaching your people to be better? The next one is competence. And we're talking about competence in their role specifically. And the last one sort of happens as a result of all of those things being effective. But there are things you can do in your onboarding program to help. And it is confidence. You want to make sure you're building their confidence so that they are successful in the things that they attempt to do. So keep those things in mind as you go through this process. But now we're going to move on to the seven steps. Are you ready? The building blocks, Maria. Let's do it. Okay. The first thing that you need to do, especially if you already have onboarding, but it's more than five years old, like Maria said, if you're going to change it, you're going to need to create a business case. People are going to say, well, we already have that. Or haven't we already done that? And there's not going to be a lot of buy-in behind you doing something different. It's going to be like, why would we need that? So here's the great news. Two podcasts ago, we gave you tips on how to do some research to assess whether or not your onboarding was effective. That particular podcast, if you did it, will now help you to write your business case for why you need to address onboarding. You know, I think some small businesses, if it's just one person in HR, may not have to write a business case. They can just do it. However, if you are talking with your CEO about this, You'll want to have conversations. That's your business case, essentially, is a verbal conversation about why it's important to revamp what you've been putting in place. Absolutely. The next, assess your needs. And this is a weird one because if you're new to learning and development, you're going to do things here that you didn't really think about being part of the process. But there are multiple things to consider when it comes to your needs. And 
The first being, as an organization, what are the things they need to know? So you've got to think about the organization, their team, their department, their role within the team, and what the needs are within that. So now I know, I want them to know the organizational structure, and I want them to know their job responsibilities. So I'm going to keep it simple for now, right? But I also need to know who my learner is. So you're going to want to do a learner avatar or a learner profile, if you will. If you are a small business owner, there is a chance that you created a customer avatar or a customer profile where you identified characteristics of your customer. Those characteristics might be their age. It might include their education. It may have included their income. If you really dug deep, it could include their hobbies or special interests. By learning those things about your customer, it then helped you to pick the best merchandise, to market or advertise that merchandise in a way that they would pay attention. It may have helped you pick the best place to advertise. Was it radio? Is it TV? Is it cable? Is it Netflix? by having that customer avatar. The same applies in learning. The more you know about your learner, the easier it will be to pick the delivery method, the amount of time in each activity, how and when you're going to deliver the training. All of those things become important. How much time you spend on certain topics might be something that you discover as a way of learning more about your learner avatar. So that's the next piece or that second building block, which is to assess the needs. The next thing I want to talk about is pre-boarding. So we talked about this two episodes ago. We talk about onboarding. We're not talking about sending documentation to the employee, which a lot of people call onboarding. In fact, Most ATS systems call that onboarding. For the purposes of this conversation, we're going to call that pre-boarding. The stuff that happens after they have accepted the position, but before they show up on day one. We said that we would give you some advice in each of these topics. So I'm going to start by saying, if it's been more than two years since you went through pre-boarding, I'm going to need you to go through it as a participant. Decide how easy, how annoying, how engaging the process is. Now that you've been with the company for more than a minute, I want you to also consider what does it really tell you about the organization going through those items. There are going to be forms and documents that you are legally required to get people to complete. That will not change. Not even beginning to suggest that you don't send them their I-9 information. Because you have to, okay? What I am saying is if you find that it's absolutely boring, not engaging, and people tend to check out, maybe you need to drop a 90-second video from the CEO welcoming them to the organization. Maybe you do need to shake things up just a little bit by including something that instead of being a handbook, with 20,000 words is a really quick video with lots of employees 
talking about how they see the organization. You got to send the things you've got to send, but it doesn't mean you can't send a few more. And if that's going to help you amp up what it feels like to go through that process, then that's what you need to do. Yeah, I think that also instills a little bit of culture as well. Like you get them engaged, you're driving culture. It's another checkpoint. Absolutely. So that was your two tips on pre-boarding. Go through it again and then change it. Consistently, this is absolutely a place where we make things a checklist. So do not be surprised if that's what you see when you go through yours. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't make you bad. It actually makes you normal. Okay. Next piece is on orientation. However, a lot of people mix up orientation with onboarding all the time. They change those verb or that vocabulary all the time. They do. And I'm a big fan of mixing orientation from that pre-boarding all the way through onboarding and not making it a separate piece. However, I would suggest that you design it separately because orientation is about nothing other than who we are and how we behave. That means it's your purpose, it's your vision, it's your mission, it's your values, it's your organizational structure. I have said this for years and I will say it forever. If you are an organization where your CEO can go on undercover boss, you should be embarrassed of your organization. If your employees are that misaligned with who is running their company, you've got bigger questions that you need to ask yourself than the ones that come up on undercover boss. And so a good orientation keeps you from being a candidate on undercover boss because it helps people understand all of those elements. But really, it can boil down to two things. Orientation is about who we are and how we behave at work, interacting with each other. Build that piece itself and then ask yourself, how do I weave these elements into pre-boarding and onboarding so that it becomes a seamless process. I think that's important to consider. It's almost as if you have to go through how the history, but also your mission, vision, and values and making sure you, you integrate them into the organization and all of that through discussions. Yep. It's one of those great places, again, where you can look at it from a very blended format. At Wendy's in Wendy's onboarding program, you learn about the history of Wendy's in an e-learning, but it's super short. I'd say probably take a few minutes to get through the process, but then you get a tour of the history wall. So during the tour, you go through this whole wall that scopes out the major moments in the history from start to finish. And so most people learn the history during a tour of the building versus during an e-learning. There's absolutely ways that you can shift it up. Maybe your first one-on-one, if you have the opportunity for that to be face-to-face with your boss, your first one-on-one, maybe it's a tour. Maybe they take you off the premises and talk about the organization 
why they're a part of it, the history, and some of the things that stand out to them. There's a lot of ways you can do it so that you help them feel like they're part of something bigger, but do it in a way that it fits within all of the other learning. Yeah. All right. Onboarding. Onboarding. So as you put your onboarding together, what you want to think about is at this point, you really need to start getting more into the how do they do their job, that competence piece. But you want to continue to weave that culture and that connection and that confidence through this. I think of it more as a thread that ties all of this together versus being a call out in particular. If you are an organization who simply states your values as a part of the onboarding process, I'm pretty confident that most of your people probably don't live your values. And that's the reason I keep saying weave through or like a thread through. So I'll give you an example, super fun project that we worked on for a major restaurant chain. They wanted to make a pretty significant change in the organization's values. And being straight up, the new values, way better than the stuff that was probably designed when the organization started. They were real, they were honest, they were direct. There was like obsessed with hospitality. And it was really clear that what being obsessed with hospitality meant was, I think it said something to the effect of treating people like their guests in your home for dinner versus people in a restaurant. So super clear. But it was a big change for people after 30 years. And we wanted people to believe in them. So we created a series of videos. We called it the man in the street videos. And there was this one guy that was a character throughout all of the videos. And he would prance into a restaurant and he would pull people aside. And he would just ask them like, what does this obsessed with hospitality mean to you? And then we would start to incorporate them into that final shot. So instead of just saying, hey, your values changed and here they are, people could look at their peers. They could look at other people carrying trays out to the customer and see their perspective. And you know what? Sometimes it wasn't exactly what was written in the value because those are usually a little bit polished, right? One lady I remember said straight up, she was like, being obsessed with hospitality means that they never have to ask me for anything. I wasn't written in there, but you know what? When you think about her interpretation of it, sort of exactly what it is, right? It's making sure that you can think three steps ahead of your customers. And so we were able to start weaving those things together and build this picture of what good looks like. Now we can take that video, we can integrate it into learning how to set a table. I don't know if you knew this or not. I was never a waitress, but there's a right side to serve people and a wrong side. There's a lot of do's and don'ts when it comes to serving people at a table. And so now we could actually play that video and talk about the expectations of their jobs and other peers in the same role are now telling them why it's important to do those things. And so, yes, You've got to teach them the right way to serve. I can't even remember what side you're supposed to serve from, but there really is the side you're supposed to serve from. When you serve from the right, you pick up from the left. Who knew? 
who knew, they knew at this restaurant, right? But it's not us just saying, it's again, it's that pass the test, right? They're not just going to pass the test because now they've started to hear from people just like them why it's important to do their job correctly. That's what we mean when we say weaving it through. Onboarding is going to look different for every role. You might find in support roles or people that have heavy admin or office responsibilities, if you will, that it might just become a guided workbook that says complete these in your first week, complete this within the first 30 days, etc. Because typically, outside of my Excel story from earlier, typically you hired people who knew how to do certain things. So if you hired someone for analytics, you expect them to be very competent in Excel already. You probably expect them to be really competent in PowerPoint in order to create stories of the analytics that they measure. So you won't actually teach them a tactical thing when it comes to that, but you might assign a project and then have their manager follow up and give them any feedback if your organization does something different in presentations than where they came from. And so the onboarding piece, you really do have to think about roles. This is also one of those places where you might have a target timeline of 90 days for the bulk of your activities, but it might go more or less depending on the complexity of the role. I've done onboarding where it was a skilled labor job and easily 16 weeks to truly do that job alone because they would also have to be able to troubleshoot and correct issues if they were alone without having a peer assigned with them. And so their onboarding was a little bit longer. I've also had roles where you can truly teach a skill within two weeks. And so they get their technical aspect of onboarding within two weeks. And then we just spend the rest of that 90 days focusing on the other elements like culture, connection, follow-ups, getting to know other parts of the business. Yeah, because someone's going to say, well, if you just hired someone to greet every person at the door and make sure everyone was greeted, then why would I need a 90-day onboarding plan? Exactly. Okay, next is reboarding. There might be a ton of questions around this one, Maria. Well, let's talk about it. Reboarding is probably a concept that unless you are in HR, you have not talked about a lot until organizations started coming back or deciding to change the way they work, whether it was coming back in the office or agreeing that we're going to be full out remote or deciding that we're going to be hybrid. Reboarding is your opportunity to really take the critical pieces, which a lot of culture and a lot of your expectations and talk about what it looks like with all employees, not just people that new to the organization. The reality is whether your organization came back to the office, stayed remote, or is going to do a combination of both, it's about time, if you haven't already, that you set some expectations 
on how you communicate with each other and how you do work. That's a big piece of this reboarding process is to help people move forward. Now, the reason I say this is going to be controversial is people are going to, it's not really controversial, but people are going to push back. Is they're going to say our culture didn't change. The hell it didn't. First of all, if you look at the past three years in the world, I promise you every single person's idea of the world has changed. For those that, this is going to be very political, Maria. I hope I don't offend a ton of people. For those crazy people in America who fight against masks and believe COVID-19 is a conspiracy, their attitudes have changed. For those of us that lost people during this pandemic, our attitudes have changed. For those that felt like they were in a place where they had no choice but to show up to work even when they were afraid for their lives, their attitudes about work have changed. And as a result of that, the fact that we bring different attitudes, it doesn't matter if you changed your vision statement or not. A vision is irrelevant if the people that work for you do not live that vision. And the fact that we changed the way we think means that we changed the way we show up for work. May be better, but it could also be worse depending on your organization. And so it is time for you to sit down and say, what changes about who we are and how we behave as a result of what has happened in the world? And I hate to tell you this, but it is currently September of 2022. And in November of 2022, you're going to see a whole bunch more changes in the United States of how people show up. And then at the next presidential election, you're going to see even more changes on how people behave and how they show up. And so if you're not constantly looking at your workforce and asking yourself who they are, what do they need, and what is the baggage that they bring to work, and how is that impacting their work? And as a result, how is that work, that impacted work, impacting our success and our customers? Then you're missing out on an opportunity to adjust in the moment, meet your employees' needs, and continue to thrive successfully. Yeah. (laughs) We have such a diverse workforce. We all need to tailor to it. I love the rant, Michelle. Absolutely. I feel like it was a rant. You know, it's interesting. I remember the good things, right? Absolutely remember all the lessons that I learned from leaders that I will never take with me as a leader. And one of them, I remember my manager telling me that her expectation was that I leave my baggage at home. And if I brought it with me, it better stay in the car. And today I realize that my baggage, good, bad, or ugly, impacts how I show up for work. So if my boss had bothered to understand what baggage I was carrying, she might have helped me be more successful in the moment. Because the thing about baggage is most of us don't carry it forever. It's a situation or a moment in time. But instead of caring that I was a human, what she wanted me to do was check out and just behave the way she wanted. And it's our reality. 
Customizing. That's the last piece. Start to find out where you can customize. We talked about this a little bit in the last episode when we used the phrase self-paced. We talked about how you can allow people to learn for themselves, give them some options and let them pick what is good for them. I'm not saying let people go on their own. I do not believe in that for several reasons. First of all, people who don't know don't know what to ask for, and that's your job. However, if as a part of this customizing process, you have trained supervisors who understand of weekly check-in and what it should be, and that should be super easy. Lots of L&D organizations have created what they call sustainment programs, and that's where they teach the manager of the learner how to have effective conversations about the learning. And that's what we're talking about here. And so if you have a manager who understands that once a week, in the beginning, I would say once a week, it can taper off towards the end to maybe bi-weekly, but definitely once a week in the beginning, that they check in with them, they ask them what they've worked through, where they've struggled, they have them turn any projects they've worked on, give them feedback. And then maybe there are some choose your own adventures for the next week. Like here's a list of people that it would be good to meet, pick three. And instead of just having the person pick three, the manager and the learner should talk through, here's some reasons this person could be good for you. Here are some things that this person does well. And then together they pick those three. So that's the idea behind customizing. Allow them to do it within the structure of weekly check-ins with their supervisor. I think it's helpful to make modifications as you go as well and tailor things as you're beginning to understand things a little bit better. Yeah, so that's it. Seven building blocks. Start with those things, build each one individually, and then see how you can weave them all together. Love it. So start with those, work on onboarding. Maybe you don't need to revamp your onboarding, but this podcast or the last two should have you thinking if that's something you should be doing or talk with your peers, your network, see who's doing what. There's always a place where you can go in and make an additional step or take a reassessment and reevaluation. Because I think, Michelle, I mean, most people are going to depart an organization within the first 90 days or the first year of being there. So making sure they're integrated right from the beginning is the most important part. It is. Absolutely. So take a look. Take a look at this foundation and establish your building blocks. That is our recommendation for you. If you have any questions, reach out. But until next time, listeners, take care. Bye. 